This morning I have a message I believe that that needs to be heard. You know, you've heard it mentioned before that uh, that how the Lord spoke to this church of all different things that he, that they were doing well, and yet they they did one thing that grieved Him more than anything. They've left their first love. Now I want to read what God says or Jesus is saying to this church, and then we'll get into this message. Look at uh, again Revelation two verse one. The angel of the church of Ephesus write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience. You have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. That's the thrust of my message here, but I will, I will just add the last two verses to it, verses 6 and 7. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ intimately knows his church, his bride. He knows it inside and out. And we also know from the book of Ephesians that he is preparing his bride. He is feeding his bride. He is caring for his bride. He is, he is washing his bride with the water of the word. He's presenting his bride, preparing her without spot nor wrinkle. Flawless to him. And yet something happened. You notice in these in, in this discord. Look at the end of verse 1. These things he says he holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. You know, one thing about the Bible sometimes is you know, in if it's in best interpreter, the seven stars. Some thinks it's actual angels that have overseen the church. I happen to be, believe it's the, the, the leaders, maybe even the pastors, the overseers of the church. But we do know for sure that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus knows this church intimately. And knowing that he knows the churches intimately should cause every pastor, every overseer out there to be very, very uh, intimately involved in accurately handling his word, loving the people that God has put before him, looking at danger, protecting from danger, but being concerned of the utmost if he sees that that 
that fervent love for Jesus Christ has kind of ebbed. You know, the fire has gone out, so to speak. And the Lord Jesus Christ is walking through his church. We've talked about this before. He's walking to the midst of his churches. And he's beholding them. You know, some people think that God views the church as, you know, you see those signs, Jesus is coming, you better get busy, you know. That's what the church at Ephesus was involved in. But Jesus is walking through the midst of his churches. He wants to intimately know them. The only other thing I'll say about any of the other churches he addresses is is the Laodicean church. You know, we all know Revelation 3.20. But as I, over the last three or four years, have, have, have been to more of a correct understanding of that, Yes, it could be an evangelistic call. Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks, yes. But in the context of these churches, Jesus Christ is standing outside of a lukewarm, dead church wanting to come in. He's knocking at the door. And the same church is crying out, we have needed nothing. You know, we're, we're situated. We got it handled. We've got thousands of people coming through this door. We do all these things. We have all these programs. We have all these things. We have needed nothing. Jesus is not talking about programs. He's not talking about affluent uh, you know, gestures as far as in the multitude. What he's talking about is the heart of every individual person that composes the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not an organization. It's actually an organism. It's, it's a vibrant body of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you know, you think you have needed nothing, but you know what? Your true spiritual state is, is that you're poor, wretched, blind, and naked. I ask you to call upon me for salve that you can put on your eyes. Your eyes will be open and so forth. That's what he told the religious people of his day. He said, you're blind. If I would not have come and said and did the things I said, they would have still been in sin. But now that I have come and done the things that I've done and said the things that I've said, their sin remains. And, you know, so in the church at Ephesus, remember, this is something that was given to John 30-some-odd years later. That's not even really a, a you look at it a, a lot of times a generation, you're looking at 40-some-odd years. This is a very short amount of time. This is the first century. We are in the 21st century. The Bible makes it explicitly clear that men will go from bad to worse. Deception will go from bad to worse. It is rampant everywhere. And all through the scripture, God is saying, hold on to what you have. Stay upon the rock. He's going through the churches. God intimately knows the foundation of life. God intimately knows all of the other churches that desire to know Him, desire to, to understand His Word, desire to walk with Him in absolute obedience, desire to be an ambassador, a true ambassador for Him, a true witness for Him. Those that know that this present world is passing away, it could be at any time. We are not investing in this world, we're investing in the one to come. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience. 
that you cannot bear those who are evil. So he knows their works. He knows their effort and their labor to be there Sunday and Wednesday and whatever else, in and out. They're faithful. You know, they, they, they don't put up with those who claim to be bearers of the truth that aren't. They don't put up with people that have uh, questionable lifestyles or live in sin. They were quick to, to you know, you're a sinner. You're, you, they had all the correct doctrine. They don't put up with, again, those are evil. They've even tested, and those that say they're apostles, apostles one sent, apostles one who has has the, the word of God. It doesn't mean that they're apostles today in the biblical sense. It just says that those that are in authority. You know, you look at Acts chapter 2, I think it's about verse 42 or so. You know, you look at the disciples came and they had fellowship and they abided in the apostles' doctrine. They had fellowship and they had prayer. Falsity. They recognized false teachers. They've even tested those by the word of God. And they found them liars. Look at verse 3. They've persevered. They have patience. They have labored for his name's sake. And have not become weary. You know, you look at these things for, for just for the, the type of language that's in you say, that's a pretty good church. That's a pretty right-on church. They're laboring for the word of God. But there's something missing. And that's Jesus himself. They've left their first love. They had all the formalism. They had all the right doctrine. They knew know what they knew how to do church. They knew how to recognize falsity. They could come and they could have, you know, dialogue with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Mooney or any of these people, and they can hold their own. A lot of times they know what to believe. They might not know why to believe all the time, but they have every right thing to say. Some of us are drenched with doctrine, which is great. We should be. We should be insaturated, if that's a word. We should be filled with the doctrine of Christ. There was a movie one time and there was about a gentleman who had spent his whole life on an island. And this gentleman, all he could do, he, he would, would get books of everything, history and books of everything. And he became knowledgeable about everything. He finally got a, tr a chance to get off of that island and go to the mainland and be involved with the populace, so to speak. And people were marveled at all the things he knew. How could he possibly know all those things? Strictly from books. He's read about them. But he knew nothing of life. Nothing of experience. And there are so many people out there that have doctrine. This country has been blessed with doctrine, with study Bibles, uh, 
now they're mostly apostate, but we look at all the seminaries and everything that is raised up in this country. This country was blessed with missionaries that went out to all of the world, more than any other country in the world, that has spread the gospel to the far ends of the earth. There are more study Bibles and study materials in this world that, that some people say three to four times the world over that can afford. We are saturated here with doctrine. So are they. We know what to do. We know what to say. Going to church becomes a religious exercise rather than to seek God in his word and be a blessing to those that need it. That's how the body of Christ works. Jesus said, if I loved you, ought you not to love one another? Paul doesn't get very far in his writings when he says that the fulfilling of the law is love. And yet this church, who had all these wonderful things about it, I want to be in a church that has good works. I want to be in a church that labors. I want to be in a church that has patience, that has perseverance. I want to go out and be involved in a church that takes what they learn of the Word of God and goes out and rubs shoulders with the world and changes the world. I want to be a part of that. I don't want to waste my time in knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. I want to be a part of a church that knows how to, to see false doctrine for what it is, who can spot false teacher. I want a church that labors for my blessed Lord and does it with a perseverance and energy and the joy of God that doesn't become weary. But brethren, I do not want to be a part of a church that has left its first love. That should be every pastor and every concerned individual that has authority. That should be their number one fear, if you will, if you have a fear. You know, I was asked the other day by, by a gentleman, um, how do you teach that? How do you teach somebody who has left his first love to, you can't. Humans cannot teach that. That is spiritual. If you have left your first love, you need to repent. You need to repent from those dead works that don't mean anything in the eyes of God. What means something in the eyes of God is that you would love the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would come to the Father through His blessed front door, that you would remain in fellowship with Him, that you would go in and out and find pasture in Him. In this church, this profession church in this country that professes to know Him, and yet they've left their first love. For those of us that have not, we know in intimacy with Christ that other people don't. But the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. I. The Lord that is walking through the midst of the churches that say that they represent Him, that they meet to, to break bread and fellowship and learn of his doctrine, 
that they learn to love one another and 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 be uh, a a church that cares, a church that uplifts in love, a church that goes out in power, a church that forsakes all others, a church that speaks in the name of Christ and for Christ alone, a church that is looking up for his return and not for uh, anything else. And yet he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You know, I... uh, so many times in the scriptures, there are so many dealings with that God has had with his church or with his people, I should say, through the prophets. So many times that God has pleaded to come back, has pleaded you've gone and you've committed, uh, you've forsaken me to go in the way of the nations. You've forsaken me to have uh, what they think. Like a brother was saying that the long suffering of, of of God has been calling to come back, to come back, to come back. I just want to give you one example, and there are many. And and the reason why I keep harping on the same examples and stuff all the time, so that you will remember them and use them as a springboard in your own study to go elsewhere, because they're all through the Word of God. I'll tell you what it's like for somebody to lose their first love. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 2, more of the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem. Saying, thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, the love of your betrothal. When you went after me in the wilderness, in a land you didn't know, in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. What does the Bible say? That we as the church, the born ones of Jesus Christ, are the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend and disaster will come upon him, says the Lord. He says, I remember that time when you followed me anywhere. Your holiness to me. I remember the kindness and the tenderness of your betrothal to me. And now that you've gone, something's happened. The deceivableness of sin has crept in. Somehow, we have lost that fervency of when we were first born again. You remember the first time that that you were born again, that God seized you, and you realized that God loved you, and He took all of your sin, and now you are His. You know your Creator. You know the God of the universe, and He loves you, and He's so tender to you. And that joy, and that excitement that you have. I remember when the day that I that I, would, that I realized that something had happened to me and the joy that entered into my heart. Now I know, God, that Jesus Christ was my Savior, that He loved me, that He would never leave me and forsake me, the joy that I had. I immediately sought to get baptized. I went down and got baptized in Cornelian Bay in, in uh, North Lake Tahoe. I went out in the waters. I came up, and, and I was so joyous. My, my folks still have pictures of it. I was so joyous I couldn't stay. 
I was beside myself. That was me. My sister, who has now been with the Lord since 1989, got baptized a day with me. And we, she looked at me and said, now we're not only brother and sister now, we're now we're brother and sister in the Lord for eternity. I was just overjoyed that Jesus Christ loved me and I was his possession. And yes, I was in a, in a very loving, nurturing church. And I wasn't under a very loving and uh, nurturing pastor. He did shepherd my life. Yes, God. But there was times early on in, in my Christian life when the temptation to waver and, and to find out maybe something might be different or I could do something or what have you entered in. Are there any of you that have left your first love? I believe there has. Or maybe not in the direct foundation of life, or maybe not in some of our acquaintances that we have. But there are those out there in the body of Christ who have left their first love, who are flirting with temptations. You know, temptation in itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The temptation, the evil comes in when you do with it. When you forsake and you commit a spiritual adultery and you go elsewhere. All the right doctrine. We all know the right doctrine in this church. And there are many of those that are listening that have the right doctrine. But that's not how the epistles, for example, were written. We've talked about this before. Check it out. We liken it to, to an egg. Where you have the yoke is the doctrine of Christ. But it is surrounded by the love of Christ. Doctrine can grow cold. If the fires of the love of Christ grow cold in your heart, you could know all the right things to say and do. And yet Jesus has become second in your life. Your interests have become number one. Your sins have become number one. What you do in the privacy of your own home becomes number one. And formality, instead of vitality, becomes number one. And God desires that we would repent, which means to turn. The psalmist says in one, one, Psalm 119, he says, I considered my goings, and I turned unto your commandments. I considered where I am. I considered my goings, and I turned to your commands. I turned to you. God will only reign in life 
through somebody's life, Christ will be Lord and reign to an individual that is willing to have him reign over them. And I pray that this morning that the church of Jesus Christ would realize that as times become more hard, more difficult, the time of His coming is more near, that this temptation is going to be stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Satan out there is like an alluring woman to a young man's life. Tempting, making things look good, promising freedom while bringing you into captivity, promising secrecy where nobody would know you can keep your religion and yet have your pet peeve too. You can keep your doctrine and sound good on purpose, but you can go home and do those things you would never do in public. You could go home and you could treat your wife, kids, or whoever else how you would never treat them in public. Who would know? The Lord knows. And He's beseeching you to come back to Him. To have full fellowship with Him. He wants to be our first love. We want to stand before Him in a life that has had Him and Him alone as our aim in life. We don't want to stand before Him ashamed. We don't want to stand before Him realizing that our life has been half Jesus and half the world. In fact, our life has mainly been a quarter of Jesus and three-quarter of us. Our life has been ruled by our self-interests and not His. I don't think, folks, in the church, a lot of them, a lot of us do. Praise the Lord. But I think there's a lot of them that lose the fact that we will stand before Him. Not with our buddies, not with our church, not with our sinning uh, friends, not with anything. Alone, we will stand before Him and give an account of what we've done with the precious commodity of new life that we have here. There are some churches in this land that do teach this. And I thank God for them. But the overwhelming evidence states just the opposite. That people want experiences. They want what God can do for them. They want what church can do for them. There are pastors untold out there that do it for the money, the prestige. That they get offended that they're not promoted as number one. By the way, that was that was a part of the, the Nicolaitan attitude. In the, in the last couple of chapters, or excuse me, a couple of verses of this discord. They want a predominance. They wanted to break an equal brotherhood, as C.I. Schofield would say, and they want predominance. They've left their first love. They want the prestige that goes on. They want to wear proverbial long robes and stand somewhere and offer pretenses of prayer, and they want people to go, wow, what a spiritual guy this is. You know, he really knows what's happening. They've left their first love. Jesus said, you are all brothers. 
Don't lord it over like the Gentiles do. You need to love one another. Lay down your life for one another. And by the way, the same apostle that was receiving these revelations, that is what he did at the end of his life. Unable to walk, they say, carried around, preaching the love of Christ. See, they've already had the doctrine of Christ. We have had a, so much doctrine there was an area going through the middle of this great land of ours called the Bible Belt. We've had so much doctrine. And praise the Lord. But we've left our first love. Paul said an amazing thing. He said, talking to those who he ministered to, he said, you are my joy and my crown in the presence of the Lord Jesus. He didn't care about how affluent they were. He didn't, God is not a God that, that, that counts converts on his right hand and not converts on his left hand. God cares that you would come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. God cares that you would love him from an open, willing heart. When we have other interests involved in that, we are not loving God from a willing heart. We are loving him from selfishness and loving us first or things first. I think when we all stand before the Lord and if he allows us any type of understanding of our previous life, I think there is there any going to be anybody that says, you know what, I just love Jesus too much. He was too much in my life. I think if there's any regret that any Christian would have that really wants to know God is, is Lord, how much time have I wasted on self-interest? On things I thought that were right instead of looking at your word and seeing what is right. I believe that there are many out there that, that God is... is We'll speak to uh, in these times that to repent. And you notice how he says to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Isn't that amazing? Because the works that that it's not what we do for Christ; it's what we allow Christ to do through us. See, and the works he's talking about, your labor of love, your, your patience, and this and that, that were works that they were doing. They were busying themselves. But Jesus says, when you repent, you turn back to him, come back to your first love, the works that are produced out of a heart of love, a grateful heart, the life, the vibrant life that he lives through us through the Holy Spirit, his resurrected life, naturally produces fruit. Jesus explains that when he says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear fruit. For apart from me, you can't do nothing. It's an abiding. It is an intimate following of Jesus Christ. This same apostle, by the way, states that if we aren't abiding in Christ, when he comes, we will be ashamed at his coming. I will end right now in saying that there are some, again, that have a lot of doctrine, Some of you out there know the Bible very, very well, which is wonderful. 
Are you allowing it to do its work in you? Do you remember that the Bible you know so well is God's word, not a book that man wrote? Some people have uh, great pride in knowing Shakespeare and Plato and Socrates and the, the, the writings of, of the men of old, which have no power to do anything but just add knowledge. But the word of God is powerful and it's active. And if we come to it in just that way, we find something here. We find Jesus Christ. We find God in the scripture. We as a whole, as, as we need to urge people to return to the first love. We need to urge people to get serious about Jesus Christ. We need to urge people to, to see the reality of this Christian life. And not just, well, you know, I, I know that I, that I have life in me, and, 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 and after all, I'm retired, and after all, I have all these good things. And I'm not saying, am I saying that God wants to take all good things away? Absolutely not. But who can enjoy anything without him? Really? Whatever we do, if Jesus Christ is a sinner, it heightens everything. He gives us richly all things to enjoy, the Bible says. But he also gives us warning. He also lets us know we're in a battle. He also lets us know that the word of God is the sword of the living God. We better know how to wield it. He also lets us know that the enemy is striking so we have armor to wear. He also lets us know that if we are lax in that armor, what happens? Look at, look at Saul, for example. Too many people today want to see Christ as a laughing Christ, and, and everything's fine, and, and you're going to have, we're going to see that as we get in our message this morning, and, and, and it's so imperative that we need to understand who God is and what he does. Yes, we have joy unspeakable, but we also are in a battle here. We're in a battle for the very life that God gave us. We're in a battle to, are we going to be quiet? Are we going to not share the love of Jesus Christ? Are we more, are we more intimately involved in, in, in getting back at people or, or, or what have you? When was the last time you shared the love of Jesus Christ with somebody? In fact, when was the last time it entered in your mind to share the love of Jesus Christ with somebody? Your neighbor could be dying. Do you know how many people are walking around in spiritual death and they don't even know it? If we don't have the love of Christ abiding within us and he's not number one, believe me. they got to hear that the God of this universe desperately seeks them for his own and you might be the only one that they hear that from. But oh, you can go to church we can spout off all the best doctrine. And we can sit in some church and go, wait a minute, I don't know about that. That pastor said something that I don't quite agree on. I don't know. I don't know. He's wrong here. We're great at doing that. And we should. I mean, you know, false doctrine comes, we should. You know, any, any, any pastor or minister or any head of this church, as, as Jesus is ministering to the, to the angels, Walking through the lampstands, any minister of the Word of God will say, 
check me out. And they, they will be comforted to know that everybody's checking them out. And a lot of people can do that. They can go to church and say and do all the right things, but their neighbors and the people they brush uh, day-to-day life with don't even know they're a Christian. We've left our first love. Some that are listening need to repent, which simply means they need to confess their sin. They need to confess their spiritual adultery if you're a Christian. They need to confess the fact that Jesus Christ has slipped in predominance in their life because he's worthy. He is worthy of everything. He is the Lord God Almighty. He's the one that gives us our very breath. And he's the one that is coming back. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, quickly, Quickly in the Bible is quickly in God's timing. Quickly might not be compared to us who live day by day. Do you know how many churches in church history have, have, have just fizzled out? That once they were strong and once they were, they were so vibrant for Jesus Christ and they were ministering and they were a church that was on fire have slowed down and died out? You know how many seminaries have gone from, from really training people and really training pastors to rightly divide the word of truth? You know how many of those are gone by the wayside and died out? But yet we also see something, and that's happening on a worldwide scale, but we also see that the body of Christ is strengthening, and they're, they're, they're waiting the Lord's return. They're preparing themselves. They're adorning themselves with the jewels and the truths that are His. And they're going out and they're allowing him to live his life through them, his love. You know, and I want to end with this this morning. Paul says an amazing thing in Romans chapter 5, and I'll just read it. You can't give what you do not have. Nobody is asking you to go out and fake love the world. Nobody's asking you to go out and, and try and clench your fits as hard as you can to love somebody, even though they aren't worthy of it. Are you and I worthy of it? God never calls that. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. It's God that pours out the love in our hearts. It's the life that we have that God is reigning within our hearts that we love naturally because He first loved us. We love. We need to return to our first love. Father, I thank You for I thank You for this this urgent message that that is so needed today. There's so many of those that are called by your name that are caught up 
not only the complexities of this day, the cares and the worries of this day, and it's choking the word. It's choking their their testimony. And it's grieving you. Nevertheless, you say, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Father, I pray that this morning uh, this message would, would convict and encourage. The Lord, as the prodigal son went out and, and lived his life the way he thought was best. But then he came to himself and he returned And he wasn't even all the way back to the father's house, but a long way off when the father saw him, that the father ran and met him. And he didn't reprimand him and beat him and throw him in a corner and put him on probation. He loved him and and put his arms around him with the tears flowing down the face and put the robe upon him, put a ring upon his finger, slew the fatted calf and rejoiced in the fact that my son was lost. He had gone off the rail. But he's come back to full, vibrant fellowship with me. Now he's my ambassador again. Now he's my instrument. Now people will know that I live because I am his first love. And he has cast away all other rivals, self-interest and everything else. And I thank you for this message this morning. I just praise you taking care of all of our needs. You love us. And I worship and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, we left off uh, in 2 Peter chapter 2, talking about false teachers and false prophets. You know, we started out, and I'll start out again. Uh, Paul said in, in the last uh, times of his life, he wrote to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1, which I want to use as kind of a springboard for our, our text throughout this, the rest of this epistle. He said, Know this also that in the last days, perilous times will come. And he goes on to explain that he's also talking about the, this professing Christian church. You know, many lovers themselves, uh, haters of God, more lovers of pleasures, and so on and so forth. And he says, I believe in the fifth verse down, he says that uh, some that will have the form of godliness, but denying the power of thereof, turn away. You know, um, in Second Peter here, the source of the apostasy is, a, is false teachers. They deny redemptive truth. We've talked about that. And by the way. Uh, if you look at the apostasy today, redemptive truth is the number one twisted, if not distorted, uh, doctrine, if you will. You know, if we distort redemptive truth, or we, we make sin anything other than what it is, sin, we, uh, we deny grace to occasion. We deny the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world by grace we're saved. We're saved from what? We need redemption. And these false teachers come in, and like we said before, they explain it away. And I think that's very, very uh, interesting because both Peter and Paul, and we also read in, in Jude, that in the last days of these men 
the urgency and the feverish pitch are of false teachers, of things that will happen uh, in falsity. Jesus said the same thing that when they asked him, uh, and we can read it in uh, Luke or excuse me, uh, Matthew twenty-four and Luke seventeen, I believe, and elsewhere. But he basically says that the number one thing in these last days will be spiritual deception. You know, to the general public, uh, earthquakes and, and famines and all that has always been a concern of people uh, in the general population, people that were without Christ, without knowledge of God in this world, so to speak. But to the Christian, to the one that has a, a yearning for, for spiritual understanding or, or what have you, he makes the statement that, watch out, spiritual deception will be rampant and will be everywhere. You know, for, for a person like me or, or for anybody that teaches the Word of God, uh, you know, there are some in here that are my teachers. Uh, you know, we read in, in Jeremiah, we hint, Isaiah talks about this, Ezekiel very pointedly talks about this, and they're called watchmen. They're called people that are on the wall. You know, it's easy when you see the, uh, danger coming, you blow the trumpet, and when the wicked hear the trumpet and they turn from the wicked ways, praise the Lord, you've done your job as a watchman. But if danger is coming and you see it and you keep it to yourself or you don't proclaim it and they perish, guess what? The blood is going to be upon your hand. You are going to be required of what? And that's what Paul meant in Acts 20 when he says, I'm innocent from the blood of all men. Have you ever read the passage and wondered what that meant? That is what he's referring to. He is innocent from the blood of all men. He has not stopped day and night for the space of three years in that region, crying out, warning everybody. You know, not only teaching the true gospel and sharing the scripture, the whole counsel of God, but warning day and night with tears because he knows that as soon as he's gone, that savage wolves will come in and pervert the gospel and twist the scriptures, not only in their own destruction, but he said this, men from your own midst. In other words, men that will come in proclaiming to be Christian, men that will come in proclaiming to know the Christ, proclaiming to know uh, the way of God and so forth from your own midst. And we don't have time to get into 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and so forth. And how does Satan do this? Satan doesn't come with a pitchfork and say, ah, I'm really the guy. Satan comes in and disguises himself as an angel of light. And he'll say just enough truth to get you going, wow, that sounds pretty good. But he'll stuff it with lies. Because he knows that the, that the, the majority of the lie listened to long enough will be believed. That's what brainwashing is all about. But I... I I really understand that there are some people out there who say, well, why do you harp so much on, on this? Because the Bible talks about this. Jesus talked about this. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, the Epistle of Jude, the Book of Revelation. We all see this thing happening, calling about spiritual truth versus spiritual falsity. You know, like we've always said, and we get that's where we get this premise. Wherever the real thing exists, there is always a counterfeit. Always. Money, uh, everything. You know, that's what frauds are all about. A fraud is to trip you up and to make you think it's the real thing. And Jesus said that is going to be absolutely rampant as this day goes forward. We know any of us that, that our head are, that unless our head is buried in sand. Know that today this quote-unquote professing Christian church is way out 
They're believing a lie. A lot of this professing Christian church is setting up a false kingdom and a false religion, preparing not for the kingdom of Christ, but the kingdom of the Antichrist. Listen to this. Now the Spirit expressly says, it's important here, the Spirit is crying out expressly, it's numero uno, he's saying in the last days, Paul says, this is 1 Timothy 4.1, by the way. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, or the latter days, some will depart from the faith. It's a falling away from revealed biblical truth. I would recommend a book to you by a gentleman named Keith Gibson. It's called Wandering Stars. If you can get it, get it. That is just one explanation of a massive movement that is, is sweeping this country of our younger people. And he is saying exactly that. And a lot of times some will depart from the faith. We need new revelation. We need new apostles. We need new understanding. That is not what the Bible says. From the beginning, thy word is truth. Thy word is settled in heaven. Heaven and earth won't pass away, Jesus said, but my words will never pass away. The solidity of the word of God is what's being attacked today. And that is what Satan is moving into, disguising himself as one who says, oh yeah, the Bible, oh yeah. But now we have, yeah, the Bible, you bet. It's great to have the Bible on your shelf, but don't take it too seriously. Remember, this is the 21st century. God's given us a brain. And we have people that have had absolute revelations. We have a guy in one of this movement that this gentleman keeps Gibson talks about. Now, when they were in the land of Egypt, had a great revelation. God came to him. God revealed to him so many things. But yeah, that's great. But you know what? The things God revealed to him supposedly are not scriptural. So these people will depart from the faith. How are they departing? Because they're giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Or as the King James says, doctrines of devils. That's exactly what is happening today. And it must be serious because Peter is going to spend the last two chapters of his epistle, the last uh, divinely recorded document that God wrote or had him write, Explaining these things. It's very, very important. I have had a child deceived. Out of our seven children, we had one who has been deceived, who has been to uh, a church that they tended to for so long, and, um, well, by the grace of God, she's not there anymore. It's, it's rampant. Our kids are susceptible this movement that I'm talking about from this gentleman's book, Wandering Stars, points a movement that is targeting young kids. That's an idea of the cult. The cult say, if we could get in and infiltrate the young minds, communism, people think is dead. Uh, communism is report that people, communism, they come into the universities and the, and the, the uh, colleges and they're after our children. That's exactly what a cult does. That's exactly what falsity does. And you and I, as being students of the Word of God, we want to be, we want to be not only knowledgeable in it, but we want to know our God uh, and know His Word fiercely and stand on it and stand on it alone. There are going to come a time, and mark my word, unless God comes in the rapture first, 
that spiritual deception will be so intertwined in America, people will think it's Christian. There will be so much spiritual delusion in here, people will think it's Christian. You remember on the Left Behind series, when when the, the, the gal has um, gone over to uh, Nikolai, which is the Antichrist, and she talks to this other guy, and I don't know, I'm not going to go into it, but she says, you know, you really get to know this guy, you like him, I think he's a Christian. That is what the deception is all about. See, we know, we, can, we know that the devil cannot wipe out Christianity, biblical Christianity, but he can sure subvert it. He can sure twist it and make the most diabolical lie somehow fit into some false uh, persuasion that this must be of God. And Paul says here, how? He says in 1 Timothy 4, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, how? Satan is behind it. And as Dr. Barnhouse used to say, Satan's not going to come on the scene with a red pitchfork. and He's not going to set up his city of wicked gangsters and, and full of fraudulent people, people hating one another, stabbing one another. No, he's going to set up a good, clean city, people that wear suits, but that deny that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. They're going to deny that the Bible is the only authoritative uh, document from God to man of faith and practice. This is what's going to happen. This is what's happening now. You and I happen to know the truth. We love the truth. We're enveloped with the truth. We're indwelt with the truth. And praise the Lord, we speak the truth. But you know what? We are to have concern with other people. We are to, to denounce false shepherds, denounce false teachers, but we are also to guard our families, guard those around us from falsity. We as a church have a responsibility, and that is to be watching. Some of us are called to be watching. But do you know that uh, James, after his and the end of his epistle, he says this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he has turned a sinner from the error of his way and will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's rampant. We looked at this morning the Ephesian, the, 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 the church at Ephesus. How this church in particular, and probably many others, because uh, epistles in those days were circulated um, around. No doubt some of the other churches read the same epistle that, the, that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Nonetheless, they knew the correct doctrine. They knew the correct positions. And yet, things have crept in unawares. Jude talks about what we hit on some of that this morning, how people, men have crept in unawares, whose condemnation has been marked out from long ago. This is nothing new. You know, when I first became a Christian, I, I, you know, and it's true, when, when you know, a baby first comes into the world, they might be a happy baby, and they might grow, and a youngster is happy because they have parents that guard them and feed them, and, every, and life is great. But once they get older and get out on themselves, when reality starts hitting, they realize that life is hard. Life is tough. They're in a battle here just to make ends meet, so to speak. When the Christian comes to Christ, he's enveloped with a love and a sense of forgiveness and an understanding that now God loves them and, and, and they're his. And that wears off and they start, getting, they start growing up and they start realizing we're in a battle here. And the battle is for the truth. You know, there's a false teacher out there that has a book that says the battle of the mind. What well, is the battle of the mind? 
but it's a battle biblically of the mind. It's not, it's not a battle of, of philosophy and, and, and veering off. People's minds are set on what they know to be true. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed. You know, two weeks ago when we started this chapter, uh, chapter 2 of Second Peter, I just want to go over a few points before, before we go on. There will also be false prophets among the people even. That's a connective word. And we'll get into that as we get into chapter 3. We'll see the same thing. How Paul or Peter's talking about the judgment. He said that God judged the world in this flood. But by this same word, it's a connective of God is going to continue this promise by the same word that he exacted judgment. Well, here we see that there was false prophets back then, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now before I go on, words do mean something. You know, words have meanings. And one of the things that I think that in the la these last days that are going to happen is not only a twisting of God's word, because that's exactly what Satan is. Yea, hath God said. Now, one thing I like about the second verse, uh, that many will follow their destructive ways, and because of who the way of truth may be blasphemed, there's a word that's very descriptive, and, and uh, they use it in the King James Version. It's called pernicious. And many will follow their pernicious ways. The word pernicious, it, it means it applies to that which does great harm, insidiously undermining or weakening. That's what that word means. Insidiously undermining or weakening. And the Bible says that many will follow their destructive ways. Not because they're coming out and saying, hey, this is false doctrine, pay attention to me. You don't want to go with the Bible says, go with my, no, that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're destructing and they're undermining. Yea, hath God really said, a sinner? Hey, come on, we all know you're not that bad. Surely God will not judge a predominant figure in the community who's raised sons and daughters to be doctors and lawyers, who has been married for 45 blameless years, who has never done anything wrong that we can see of, surely God will not judge somebody like that. What if that feeds right into human nature? That alleviates fear. Let's get back to the prophets and say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Many will follow their destructive ways by whom the way of truth may be blasphemed or maligned. Either way, the truth of God is put aside for something of a better understanding. You know, and another thing too, if we look at all the things that the Bible looks at, as far as sin goes, sin comes from within the outworking of sin is just that, the outworking of what's already in there. 
Man can do nothing about that. He was born that way. He was born in the sinful nature. What do we see today? We see a doctrine floating around amongst false teachers that say, wait a minute, hold it. Where, what, where, is, where did original sin really come? What is original sin? You know, And they're going so far and saying, no, babies aren't born in sin. They acquire a sin after they get up to the age of accountability or where they can be right and wrong. Thus, they take away the fact that man was born of the sinful nature. Save Christ. Hence the virgin birth. Hence the maligning of doctrine. Hence the undermining and the weakening of the truth. He says in verse 3, By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time the judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. I want to read something to you. This is a very, very instructive chapter uh, in the prophets. It's Je- uh, Jeremiah 23. You can turn there if you like. If not, that's okay. We're going to be dealing with different parts. But I think sometimes it's very instructive to actually turn to the Word and see it rather than just to hear it. So the next time that something pops in your mind, you go, well, wait a minute, I, I think we did that in Jeremiah somewhere. Jeremiah chapter 3, I want to start verse 16. Now remember our, our, our text where it says that there's many that are going to be uh, destructive in their ways and they're going to deceive you by exploiting deceptive words. Peter says, just as a prophet's experience that of false prophets of old, you're going to have that now. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, starting verse 16. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart and not from the mouth of the Lord. Is that what's happening today? Absolutely. Verse 17, they continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Now, without going too much farther into this text, the word speaks for itself. Look at these two things. Those who despise me, they're going to say, hey, here, peace, peace, peace. And then they say that no evil shall come upon you. In other words, God is not going to judge. We're going to see in chapter 3 that Peter talks about the same thing. Where's the promise of his coming? What's going on? Judgment? People don't want judgment. People don't even think about judgment. People don't fear judgment today. Instead, they're replaced with the fear of God. Fear this. Judgment is something we must talk about. That's something that God warns about. He is trying to alleviate people from going through judgment. That he's not willing that any should perish in judgment. That all should come repentance. So these people are saying again, and to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, "No evil should come upon you." Look at verse eighteen. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and perceived and heard His word? Who has marked His word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. 
In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. Look at verse 21 if you're there. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Verse 23, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Verse 24, Who can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? You know, deception. Again, there's going to come such a deception that this world is going to know and going to see that everything will be, quote, unquote, connotated as one world, one uniting, and Christian will be the deceptive word. You know, I think that if we look at uh, so many things in the book of Revelation and so many things about the end-time prophecies about this antichrist or this man of lawlessness, this deceivable one, this one that causes desolation, why, and why at the root of it does he cause desolation? Because he wants to be worshipped as God. When in, in Revelation 5, I believe it is, when John was up there and, they, and the scroll was handed down from the Father and nobody was able to open it, and they all wept, but he says, be of good cheer. The lamb has prevailed. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the scroll, the scrolls and loose the book. And what does he do? He opens it up. And what do we have in the first scroll? A, a conqueror riding on a white horse, but it's not the white horse. The white horse isn't until the 19th chapter of Revelation. He goes out to conquer and, and, and to conquer. Destructiveness, deception is everywhere. You know, I've come to realize that that in, in my heart of hearts, I'd rather have a church that's small in number and, and strong in, in Jesus Christ and strong in the Word of God and able to stand these days that are coming. Because they are coming. And we can start seeing little hints of, of the fact that when the church is removed, there's a strong delusion that's going to pervade this world, that they will believe the lie. The lie is that Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world, and there's no hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sins apart from Him. He's the truth. You know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to follow by me. And Pilate said an amazing thing when he was standing up to judge what is truth? Because Jesus said, all that are on the truth stand with me on the side of truth. And Pilate says, well, what is truth? Truth is something that, that the world has been grappling with forever. And that's why deception is so rampant, spiritual truth. You know, I think all of us right off the, the top of, of before I, I get into the heart of this uh, we need to be thankful for those that have, in our past, that have been uh, responsible for bringing the Word of God, for faithfully bringing the Word of God, for loving the Word of God, for nourishing us, for correcting us when we've gone astray, for being there and 
wanting and desiring our spiritual growth. You know, again, we, we can't go very far in this. I want to just recap. False teachers, destructive heresies. And what Jesus said in Matthew 24, take heed, which means this is prominence. Understand, listen, take recognition. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ. This is a very key understanding. Christ means the anointed one. Many will come and say, I have the word of God. Many will come and say, look at all the men, quote unquote, God men that came from the East and the New Age movement, all these things. You know, it just took one man, Maharishi Mashiogi, to come and inform the Beatles and look at, look at the generation that they influenced. Many people will come in my name and say, I am Christ. Some are bold like David Koresh and other people that say that, yeah, I am Jesus. Louis Farragon, one of the latest ones, uh, and so forth. But the deception comes in when they say, I'm the anointed one. I have a, min, a message of God. And your way is narrow-minded. Your way says that there's only one way. That's too narrow-minded for this sophisticated society. After all, we are individuals. This is the 21st century. We have a lot to offer, but we don't have a lot to offer God. Let's go back to the scripture. And if anybody had a reason to boast before God, Abraham should have. But the Bible says not before God. He can boast before men, but not before God. So, destructiveness. John in his second letter describes the deceivableness of these people. For many deceivers have gone out in the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not only proving his, his pre-existence, but the only one that is the hope of mankind. Without Christ, it's judgment. Without Christ, it's perishing. And God said, that is it. And these deceivers will come and will say, wait a minute. You know, okay, Jesus, we can't deny he was a man. But you know what? There's more than one way. You know, there's a lot of religions out there that say there's more than one way. There's some religions that say there's, there's more than one way that come to your door every week or every other week. You know, they're all around us. But yet, because they don't have the, maybe the, the language that we read all the time, we think, well, wait, this is old. This is talking about something else. No, folks, it's here now. I want to re I want to re say a quote from from Tim LaHaye that I think is just excellent on this matter, and then we'll go on. He says many will follow false teachers, especially in the last days. These cults, liberal churches, and occult movements, which are rapidly spreading all over our land, are speaking in the name of Jesus or of the Christ but never of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they will never talk about God as being the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's insightful. We need to thank God that he's raised up people like that. You see, doesn't that add validity to Ephesians 4? Where he gave some as apostles, some as evangelists, some as prophets, some as teachers, some as pastors, for the equipping of the saints, so that we would not be moved to and fro with various winds of doctrine. How dare these people say that these are old documents, we need something new. 
You know, where does the Bible say that experience runs the day? Where does the Bible say that, that we, we live off experiences from one high peak to the other? It never does. Jesus dwells down in the valley of those that love him, that promise to bring them through the valley of death, that promise to lead them in their ways of understanding, that promise to know exactly when to let them lie down in green pastures and exactly when to go up in the, in the path of righteousness for his namesake. He is the good shepherd that has never left And these false teachers are denying that very existence that Jesus came to give to us. He says in verse 3, again, by covetousness. You know what covetousness is? It is gleaning something that is not yours. Truth does not belong to false shepherds. Truth does not belong to false prophets. Truth does not belong to false teachers. Truth does not belong to lying and saying, of, of lying wonders and signs. Because they're going to exploit you with deceptive words. Listen, I don't want people lying to my kids. I don't want people lying to my wife. I don't want li- people lying to you. I don't want people lying to me. But it says, with not only covetousness, these people with greed are going to take something that's not their own. Listen, the truth belongs to those that will cherish the truth. Belongs to those that will that will guard it at all costs. Paul says repeatedly, guard what the Holy Spirit has entrusted to you. Paul says in 1 Timothy that I've been entrusted with the gospel of Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is going to trust a faithful men. That's why we're told to teach faithful men that will teach also. But it does not belong to falsity. They're going to exploit you with deceptive words. And God, their judgment has not been idle. Their destruction does not lumber. It's, it's been from way back, God has spoken about these people. And it all started in the garden. It actually started before that. But man's deception started in the garden. And that is one of the reasons why that part of the scripture is so much laughed at and regarded as myth. Because you take out that discord in the garden and you and spiritual deception has really no uh, validity to it. Wow. You know, I'm going to go into Jude a lot. Flip over just a little bit. Look at Jude 4. Remember, verse 3, how, how these, these deceptive people will come in with deceptive words. The judgment's not idle. Look at Jude 4. He expounds on this. For certain men have crept in and noticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They deny him. Jesus said, if you don't have me, you don't have the Father also. They deny this redemptive truth. They've crept in. Where did they come from? Paul was warning, speaking of the church at Ephesus, the same thing in Acts 20. Watch out. Because you're going to be saying the same thing. Where did these people come from? They came from your own midst. They came from supposedly Christian origins, supposedly Christian churches. But oh no, they can't come with me. They came from Princeton Seminary. No, no, not knowing that Princeton Seminary has been apostate for years. Most of these people that stand behind the pulpits that have gone to seminary, or a lot of them, not all of them, are the product of the seminary that they spent years being fed under. 
Where do these people come from? Oh, no, they can't be them. Yes, they can be them. Dr. Barnhouse says this way, if you're looking for the devil, look behind the pulpit. That's where the deceiver of righteousness will be, and amongst other places. By covetousness, they're going to exploit you. Look at verse 4. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, These are strong words. You know, and I think that, that what's interesting about, the, about both Paul, the Apostle Paul, Peter, John, and, and Jude, is that they end their wonderful, uh, especially Peter and Paul, they end their wonderful epistles of so much richness with a warning. And it's all about judgment. As we talk about these things, especially in chapter 2 of, of 2 Peter, so uh, uh, linked, if you will, in contentual understanding with Jude. Judgment, judgment, judgment is going to fall on these false teachers. Look at Jude 6. Explains it again. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Judgment. People don't like to be to talk about judgment or to hear about judgment. But the Bible's full of judgment. The Bible is full of the fact that God is God, He's holy and pure, He created everything good, He created humanity to have fellowship with Him in love. And yet, because of sin and men going their own way, God must judge sin. He must. If there's any part, uh, if there's any ideology or thinking apart from that fact, God is maligned. He is not represented truthfully. God must judge sin. And he judged yours and mine on the cross when he struck his son instead of you and I in judgment. I rightfully deserve judgment. I rightfully deserve it. I have gone my own way. But God caused all my iniquity to fall on the Lord Jesus Christ and your iniquity too. That's the wonderful thing about the good news. Satan hates the good news. And anybody who stands up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have an enemy that is going to try to stop you, going to try to distort you, going to try to, to uh, discourage you, depress you, Rob you of your joy? Twist up the scripture? Yeah, as God really said? Is that true of me? We were speaking some time ago, years ago, uh, we were doing a, uh, uh, a, a Bible study, and we were teaching on the book of Romans. Well, I only made it, this one, in, in the book of Romans, till the third chapter, and I was thrown out. You know why we were thrown out? People complain, that can't be me. That can't be me. Read the first chapter of Romans that all the world is accountable to God. All the world becomes guilty towards God. Not only accountable, yeah, I'm accountable to you, but I might not be guilty to you. But the language says we all become guilty before God. The, the depravity of sinful nature, the depravity of humanity, 
They never let me get to Romans 3.22. But now, those are some of the greatest words in the Bible. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed through the prophets. That Jesus Christ is the answer. But you can't tell me that can't be me. Yes, it's you. I, I would amount that that if we if we read the first three uh, the two or three different individuals that really made a fuss that this guy's this you can't take it anymore. And by the way, they went on to replace uh, the book of solid book of Romans and the teaching of sin with the happy book of Philippians because he wanted to teach the joy of Christ. Well, let me tell you. Um, Jesus was fond of telling stories of how men were broken and yet they're alive. These teachers are going to, these false teachers are going to dampen that. And the very thing that gives grace or gives Jesus Christ coming into the world, dying for the sins of the world, this occasion, they don't explain it away. Surely God will not judge. Look at verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. <laughs> the flood. Again, maligned, twisted, laughed at, well, then, you know, there may have been a flood, but it was a local flood. Or there may have been a flood, but really everything died. Has God really said everything died? Well, we have fossils that prove that the flood wasn't, uh, you know, worldwide. Listen to that debate we have with Ken Ham and uh, Bill Nye. They're going to deny it. It was judgment. God judged the world because it says that in in Genesis 6, right before the flood, that he saw that every imagination of man was continually evil. God must judge it completely. He's not just going to judge a part of it, let the other go rampant. Well, it's a great way that you're in the western part of the world, because the eastern part of the world, I really judge. Is God that way? No. God has no respect for persons. God judges sin. And turning the cities, verse 6 of Sodom and Gomorrah went through this all into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. An example. Men laugh at that. Look what's happening today with the homosexuality, the LGBT, all this stuff like that. The example was that not only this was going on, but the sexual immorality, the anarchy, the, the leaving God out. The men by themselves running amok. That's all sin can do is run amok without God. And God must judge it. Using his great examples. I even knew about the flood before I was a Christian. I had heard about that. I had heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody hears about Sodom and Gomorrah. If they know what sodomy is and so forth. I heard of these things as a kid. But he said there's examples. God judged these places. The flood was a worldwide flood. God judged, look at look in Joshua chapter 10, man. Remember when, when God said the hailstones down? On certain individuals. God has pointed judgment, God has world catastrophe, but nonetheless, God sends judgment. And we're all heading up to chapter 3 when, when the apostle here is talking about God is going to judge the world. By the same word we're talking about here. 
And false prophets will enter and say, they'll, they'll denounce judgment. There's no judgment. God's not going to judge us. We must understand judgment. Because if we don't understand judgment, folks, listen to this. If we don't understand God and the fact that he must judge sin, we don't understand the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Christ shows two things to the world blatantly. One, the love of God, and one, the hatred he has of sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, the remedy for their sinful condition, will not perish. So God loved the world so much he sent his son. Love unfathomable. But yet, he hates sin so much that those that don't believe in it love will perish in sin because sin was judged at the cross. And false teachers will explain that away somehow. It is not our timing here, because my time is getting short, to explain what all ways that they do explain it away. Flip on some type of, of Christian channels or watch TBN or something. I'm not denouncing all TBN, don't get me wrong, but I have had many, many people uh, say, I'm not going to watch that anymore. I'm, not, I'm saying we need to have discernment. We have the flood. We have Sodom and Gomorrah. We see in verse 7, a delivered righteous lot who is opposed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day and seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That word temptation... That word temptation means that it is set on somebody's ruin. It is set on somebody's captive, you know, uh, allurement. Temptation is always there to capture. You know, the Bible says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you. Except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Jude, at the end of his epistle, Jude 24, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Before we leave this, this uh, subject of judgment, I want to say this. One uh, passage from Psalm 11, Psalm 11 and a passage from Isaiah 6 to 6. Psalm 11, 6 says this. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. What is the lake of fire described as? Lake burning with brimstone. It's a fiery judgment. God has pronounced that men apart from Christ are wicked. Men do not want to look at themselves as wicked. They do not. That's why we were cast aside out of teaching the book of Romans because we were too harsh. That's why men today will not accept the fact that the wicked me, I'm wicked. My grandmother, who was, I spent majority of my childhood, I loved her immensely. If she, she died when I was young, if she didn't have Christ, she's, she. She's labeled as wicked. And if she did have Christ, she was a wicked person saved by grace. 
People don't want to look at that, but they must look at that. People would rather go, tell me how beautiful I am. You know? Tell me how beautiful I look. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, wow, I just got my hair done. How, tell me how beautiful I look. You know, I'm a great guy. I want to know how much of a great guy I am. Well, you know, if, if you were to be judged by a human court, well, maybe. But you're to be judged by the divine court. God himself is the judge. He determines what is right and what is wrong, what is godly, what is ungodly, what is wicked and what is not. And the only one not wicked in his sight that walked this earth is the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for I. So the cross of Christ, the love of God is shown uh, in the apex of history, so has his hatred on sin. God hates sin. And he judged it in Christ. And now these wicked, filthy dreamers, these false prophets and false teachers, look at the example of history, how God judged the world. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. But he reserved the unjust for the day of judgment. Look at verse 10, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. The Bible says in, in Psalm 119, uh, and elsewhere to keep us from presumptuous sins, Proverbs 30 and elsewhere. They're self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. They're not afraid to speak evil of what they don't know and of what is not in the realm of the, the heavenly realms. They speak evil of. They're self-willed. They're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of judgment. They're not afraid of anything. They're their own person, they're the captain of their fate, and they want to teach you that. That's what all humanism is all about. Package it as Satanism, package it as health help, package it what you will. It's all humanism. It is all teaching man that man can do apart from God. That man's going to be fine apart from God. Man is not going to be fine apart from God. You know, if you look at, at chapter 3, verse 1, this is what Peter's doing. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle of both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. You know? You know if you know a lot of these things. Even if we, we, we you know, think about these things or what have you or have dealt with these things personally. Paul says, and so does Peter, that he's going to stir up. Make, make these things known. They're leaving. They want to impress it because when they're gone, they want the people that they're talking to be able to stand up and to know right from wrong. Look at verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. In other words, they don't take judgment into their own hands. Judgment is reserved for God. Wrath is reserved for him and him alone. This is what Isaiah says. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpse of men who have transgressed against me, says the Lord. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be abhorred unto all flesh. Like we said last week, that is exactly the terminology Jesus used in Mark chapter 9. Several times, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We better give heed to the one that says, I am he, 
And if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. That is strong language. Ah, you Christians are narrow-minded. Yes, I am narrow-minded. I'm very narrow-minded. Because Jesus is. There's two roads. Yeah, there's a broad road. Hey, I'm, I'm an intellectual. Hey, you know. Live and let live, you know. And if there's a broad road, Jesus says, there I am. You choose. Are you going to go on the road where he's at and stand on his word and believe every word of it? Or are you going to stand on the broad road and have the applause of men and be a great guy? And, and you know, and I can live with your theology because it lets me breathe. It lets me be with me and, and, and curiously uh, satisfy the burning conscience I have uh, that all men have, you know. What, what is it? What's the choice that we're going to make? I think I'll, I'll end here. I, you know, the rest of this chapter, before we get into chapter 3, is, you know, basically the depravity of false teachers. They're, they're depraved. They're cursed children. They're forsaken the right way. They've gone in the way of Balaam. They don't know the way of righteousness. Uh, you know, they're full of iniquity. Uh, describing in verse 18 and down, they're empty. They're, they're, you know, they're full of error. They're full of, of hypocrisy. They're full of sin. They promise the way of liberty, but really what they're doing is they're capturing you. They're slaves of corruption. And they're describing these perfectly and understanding what the Bible says about these people. And then in chapter 3, we're going to get to the fact that he is going to say, Hey, you know what? Despite all of this, now that you know that, I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. They're going to come out and they're going to be mockers. They're going to run out to their own will. They're going to say, where is he coming? Is he coming? What? Who? I don't even know this stuff, what you're talking about. Everything's gone on the same. I remember 50 years ago, the sun rose in the the east and set in the west. You see this birthmark? I had it when I can remember five years old. I'm 65. It's still there. In other words, things are going on. What, What is this that you're talking about? You know, there's a, there's a great pronouncement in the Word of God in several different ways how God equates eternity with time. Okay, we see it in Psalm 90. We see it in Psalm, or we see it here where Paul says a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. You know, God is not like man. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. In fact, there's highest from the heaven above the earth. Time is something that man is accustomed to. But when you when you are born again, you start you're in the spiritual realm. You start you start seeing things from God's perspective, and you start looking at the Bible as God's word of God, God's word. You look at the lens of this human history through God's perspective, and things start coming into line. These false teachers don't have that. So with covetous words and everything, they're going to malign you. They're going to lie to you. close with this. I know that uh, several of you know this, and I've, I've said it before, but years and years ago, um, Josh McDowell used to go on the campuses of, of this land, and he made a statement that I've, I, I learned early on. I've used it many, many times myself. Jesus said that in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, includes you, comes to the Father but by him. Either he is a self-deluded maniac, an egotistical man, or he is who he claims to be. 
And all of us at one point or another in our life must grapple with that. So we might as well grapple with that now and take the side of the truth. So when these false teachers and false philosophies and, and the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, which is prevailing in the land now, it's prevailing in the land in the first century, it's, it's gaining speed as we speak. And it simply says they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They deny that there's only one way to God. They deny that he came into this world by a virgin. They deny the fact that he and he alone answers sin's tyranny. They deny the fact that without him we are all doomed to judgment. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. Mike, you want to pray, please? Father, please give us greater insight and uh, appreciation for your majesty, for your justice, Lord, that our inner man would be built up, that we wouldn't fall away from our first love, Lord, that, that we would grow in, in love as we eagerly await uh, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ when he'll be marveled at among us. And so, mm. 